Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. We have a, a really cool and special day today. This is our President and Fellow Research Day, tra tradition that we started a few years ago to highlight the great work that our pediatric residents and pediatric fellows are doing in research and academics with our faculty. Uh, this is something that has taken off. Uh, we have uh, uh, well over close to 30 posters and abstracts that were submitted uh, for uh, evaluation. Uh, and, and I give a lot of credit to uh, Dr. Sharon Smith, who really has spearheaded this and has moved it forward in so many ways. Uh, and you will hear from her just a, in a little bit. Uh, we also have uh, Dr. Justin Radel, who's joining us today, uh, came out of his uh, uh, seclusion in, in his office uh, in Avon, where he's been working very hard uh, behind the Zoom camera. And, uh, and Justin is our senior scientific advisor, who uh, really has been a, a role model of, uh, of uh, pushing us to, to do what, you know, as, as best as we can in the academic world, because this is so critical and important for everything that we do. So uh, today we will have uh, four presentations from two fellows and two residents, and they were chosen from, a LARP, again, from well over 30 posters that were submitted for evaluation. Uh, this is the best that we have today, and you will see why. It's really going to be very exciting for them to be presenting, and the typical fashion is done in the academic world. Uh, to introduce the session, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Sharon Smith to come up and uh, tell us a little bit about the story of uh, how we got to this, and then uh, Dr. Smith will introduce Dr. Radolf, who will then introduce each one of the four speakers. They will have 10 minutes. We'll have a, a red light for them so that they don't go over 10 minutes, and if they do, we'll expose them to coronavirus. No, I'm just teasing. We won't do that. Uh, and, and then at the end of each 10-minute presentation, you will have uh, time to ask questions specific to that poster, and then we'll move on to the next one. Uh, then. So again, welcome to the Grand Rounds, a very special one, and I'm going to ask Dr. Smith to come up and do the introductions. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Salazar, and welcome to Resident and Fellow Research Day. This is actually my favorite day of the year. Uh, I'm the resident uh, research nerd in the group. So I wanted to let you know we did, we had 29 submissions uh, of abstracts from our resident and fellows from across our residency program and almost every fellowship program. Please note that you got an email yesterday with a link to the poster session. This is the platform version uh, of our research day. I'm sorry that we can't do it live. There's a link. If you click on that link, you can look and read all of the abstracts. There are posters for you to look at, and there are also two to three minute video or audio clips uh, of the residents and fellows presenting their poster for you. And thanks to Marianne Custer and our, our amazing uh, folks here, and Nicole, you can actually get CME credit for looking at the posters. So please go look at them. Uh, they're fabulous. So I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Justin Radoff. Uh, as Juan said, he is the Senior Scientific Advisor for Connecticut Children's, and he is the moderator for our platform session today. Dr. Radoff? Good morning. It's always a great pleasure to do this. Um, we have some great research that's being done by our residents, and as one of the judges, I can honestly say it's always very difficult to decide which ones are the best. I think they're all great. So with that, let us get started. Our first presenter is Amy Miller. And I'm looking for her title. I don't see it. Oh, there it is. OK, good. Uh, observation times for children after acute exposure to laundry detergent pods. Amy? Thank you. Good morning. My name is Amy Miller, and I'm one of the third-year graduating pediatric residents. 
I'm honored to be sharing my research with you today on the observation times for children after acute exposure to laundry detergent pods. I'd like to thank my mentor, Dr. Sharon Smith, and the staff at the Connecticut Poison Center. Laundry detergent pods were introduced in the United States in 2012. The colorful, bite-sized pods contain concentrated alkaline solutions, which have shown to cause toxic effects on children, including dermal and ocular injuries, vomiting, respiratory distress, central nervous system depression, seizures, coma, and even death. The popularity of these colorful single-use pods increased following their introduction as consumers found them a convenient alternative to traditional liquid detergent. The purpose of this study was to determine the observation times necessary for children with acute exposure to laundry detergent pods to identify the development of potentially significant symptoms. Our goal was to identify a safe observational period that can be implemented in emergency departments or by poison control centers when children are exposed to detergent pods. This would ensure that children are observed long enough to capture those who will develop medical complications requiring treatment. This was a retrospective case series that utilized data from the Connecticut Poison Control Center. The Connecticut Poison Control Center offers free and confidential emergency poison information to those who are exposed to toxic substances. Data was abstracted from the center database from January 1, 2013 to December 31, 2017. We included children ages birth to 18 years old with single unit laundry detergent pot exposures. We excluded children who had been exposed to additional substances or had an incomplete list of exposed substances. We also excluded children whose exposure occurred outside of the state of Connecticut. Data for this study was collected from Toxicol, which is the poison control center database that is utilized by every center across the country. Every call that is made to the poison control center is cataloged within Toxicol. Basic demographic information was collected at the beginning of each phone call, including age, sex, and zip code. We also collected information regarding the detergent pods, including brand, number of ingested, and routes of exposure. The specialist also documents a narrative regarding the specifics of the case, including symptoms reported and timing of symptom development. Additional follow-up calls to the Poison Control Center with new information regarding each case are time-stamped within the narrative with the additional details. The specialist taking the call finally categorizes the outcome of the case, including the management site, as well as the medical outcomes and patient outcomes. The medical outcome was categorized as no effect, minor effects, moderate effects, major effect, or death. Minor effects were defined as minimally bothersome, rapidly resolving effects that usually involve the skin or mucous membranes. Moderate effects were more pronounced or more systemic in nature. Treatment usually was required, but effects were non-life-threatening. And major effects were symptoms that were life-threatening or resulted in significant disability. A total of 472 cases of pediatric exposures to laundry detergent pods were identified. Ages ranged from six months to six years of age with a median age of two years old. Males accounted for 52.5% of exposures. The data collected spanned across five years from January 2013 to December 2017. The breakdown of occurrences by year was evenly distributed with between 77 to 104 pediatric exposures per year. The route of exposure is reflective of how the child came into contact with the substance, 
our data set included four routes of exposure, including ingestion, aspiration, dermal, and ocular. Some children were exposed through more than one route of exposure, such as ingestion and dermal, or ocular and dermal. And these were all categorized under multiple routes. One child in our data was exposed through all four routes of exposure. The most common route of exposure was ingestion, which was the sole route of exposure in 68.9% of cases. 22% of children were exposed through multiple routes. This graph is looking at the subset of children who sought medical care in a treatment facility and their disposition. 230 of the 472 children were seen at a medical care facility. 54.6% of children were deemed safe for discharge at the time of evaluation. 38.7% of children were observed in the emergency department, and only 6.5% of children, or 15 children, were admitted to the hospital. Medical outcome was determined by the Poison Control Center specialist taking the phone call. These again were no effect, minor effect, moderate effect, major effect, or other. Other category refers to the cases that were either not followed and deemed not toxic, not followed and deemed minor effects, confirmed non-exposures, or if they were unable to follow but the effects were deemed non-related to the exposure. 101 children were asymptomatic following exposure to laundry detergent pods, and so were categorized as no effect. The majority of children had minor effects, which was 266 children, or 56%, and no deaths were reported. The goal of this study was to look at the time to onset of symptoms. We ended up with 20 separate symptoms that children experienced after exposure to laundry detergent pods. Each symptom was grouped into a category of GI, ocular, respiratory, neurologic, nasopharyngeal, and dermal. This graph demonstrates time ranges along the x-axis in minutes for each symptom category. The blue bar demonstrates symptoms that occurred in less than 30 minutes, orange for symptoms that presented between 30 and 60 minutes, gray for symptoms that occurred between one to two hours, yellow for two to three hours, dark blue for three to four hours, and green for symptoms that presented four more hours after the exposure. GI symptoms included abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. 71% of GI symptoms presented in less than 30 minutes and 92% presented in less than an hour. Overall GI symptoms presented in children in less than two hours in 98% of the cases. Ocular symptoms included eye pain, conjunctival injection, and diagnosed corneal abrasions. When children had ocular exposures and developed ocular symptoms, it presented in less than 30 minutes 56% of the time and less than one hour 69% of the time. 5% of ocular symptoms presented greater than four hours after the exposure. These children often had delayed diagnosis of corneal abrasion as they were often seen in follow-up by an ophthalmologist in the preceding 24 hours. Respiratory symptoms included cough, respiratory distress, and stridor. This presented in under 30 minutes, 73% of the time, and in less than three hours, 98% of the time. Neurologic symptoms included lethargy and agitation, which presented in under 30 minutes and 49% of patients, and in less than three hours, 97% of the time. Nasopharyngeal symptoms included oral irritation, nasal irritation, and increased secretions. These were usually deemed minor symptoms. 
Nasopharyngeal symptoms took a little longer to present with only 29% presenting in the first 30 minutes and 62% presenting in less than one hour. 90% of symptoms presented in under three hours and 5% of nasopharyngeal symptoms presented after four hours. Dermal symptoms were categorized under general, general category of skin irritation. And as you can see, 54% of dermal exposures presented in under 30 minutes and 96% of skin irritation presented in under three hours. For children exposed to laundry detergent pods younger than six years of age with aspiration, dermal, or ingestion routes of exposure, you can consider observing for three hours. Ocular injuries may present later and say may warrant longer periods of observation times. Limitations of the study included the fact that it was a retrospective study. The data was mostly self-reported by the caregivers of child, although there was some data reported by medical professionals. The biggest limitation of the study was collecting the timeline from the narrative. All data entries were time marked as well as the time of ingestion was documented. So data was collected based on the time range of the symptom in which it could have occurred rather than a specific time. We concluded that children younger than six years of age with an acute exposure to laundry detergent pods should be observed for at least three hours, whether at home or in the emergency department, as the majority of symptoms are likely to present within that time frame. Thank you. Questions? You can from there, from there, Justin. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, Dr. Radolf is now going to uh, pose any questions that the audience has. Please uh, make, make sure that you ask the questions through the Q&A feature of the Zoom telecast. And again, the, this uh, presentation is now open for questions. Now, I'll, I'll ask the first one, uh, Amy. Uh, first, great work. Yeah, that, was, that was well done. Thank you to you and your mentors. And what was the most serious thing that you saw with the ingestion of these pods? Um, so the most serious thing on data collection that I saw was usually um, children who had ingested more than one pod and had um, oropharyngeal injuries. Many of those children were just observed overnight, um, but some of them did end up undergoing endoscopy to look for injuries. And then a follow-up question is, you know, what do you, what did, from what you learned, what can you do to prevent these types of injuries? That's a great question. Um, so one of the things we were hoping to see is that actually the number of um, children who were exposed to these pods would decrease um, just because the um, industry started putting out a lot of safety manufacturing and some safe lids and things like that. Um, so really it's just bringing awareness um, that kids are attracted to these pods. And so families with young children may um, consider using liquid detergent or powder detergent as it's not as toxic to children as the concentrated pods. I had a question too. I was wondering, did, did you or whoever, well, this is all retrospective, but I assume you've seen cases like this here. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, do you talk with the parents and try to get, uh, help them understand, come up with a better way to, to use this product? Yeah. 
So um, I have seen a few cases of this in the emergency department and um, speaking with those parents, we do a lot of um, anticipatory guidance um, about the pods. A lot of times, um, you know, reading through these narratives, it was the parent was doing the laundry and turned around and didn't realize that the child was in the, um, the bucket of the pods on the floor. Um, so we do a lot of anticipatory guidance with parents, not just that, but it's also um, a time to teach parents also about other things that young children can get into, such as medications and things like that. I think a lot of parents don't realize how attractive these are to kids because they look like candy. They're quite colorful and quite attractive for kids. So before you go, we have, we <laughs> had to do this in the COVID era. We have a certificate to you. So Thank you. To honor you for this wonderful presentation, your research. Thank you so much. Do not lose the envelope because there's a check in there. Thank you so I much. I cannot shake your hand, but my heartiest congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I don't need this, right? Okay, sorry about that. The masked man. The masked senior advisor. Okay, so now moving on. Uh, now we have Dr. Shaheen Andreas who is going to talk to us about the use of on, oh, ondanistri, I can't pronounce it, it's a new one for me. Okay, I'll let her say it. At discharge for a pediatric emergency department, not being a pediatrician, I have an excuse for not being able to present, uh, pronounce that word. Hi. Thank you. Uh, so my name is Shaheen Andreas, and I'm one of the third year pediatric residents. And I'm here to talk about my research on the use of ondansetron or Zofran at discharge from pediatric emergency departments. So nausea and vomiting are common chief complaints that present to the pediatric emergency department. They are often given Zofran while in the emergency department, which has been shown in previous research to promote oral rehydration and decrease the need for IV placement, IV hydration, and hospital admissions. Little research has been done on the use of Zofran after discharge from the pediatric emergency department. The purpose of my study was to describe the prescription practices of Zofran at discharge from, for patients who received the drug for acute nausea and vomiting and determine Zofran's effect on 72-hour return rates to the pediatric emergency department. This was a single-center retrospective cohort study that took place between January 1, 2018 to December 31, 2018. We included all children who were six months to 18 years old who presented to the emergency department with a chief complaint of nausea, vomiting, gastroenteritis, or inability to tol tolerate oral fluids. They also had to have been treated with Zofran while in the emergency department. We excluded patients who presented within two weeks of their first included visit in the study, who were found to be pregnant, who were admitted to the hospital, who were prescribed Zofran in the emergency department for a different diagnosis, such as concussion, or who had, also, who had comorbid conditions, 
including chronic GI illnesses, such as Crohn's disease, cyclic vomiting, or celiac disease, who had been previously diagnosed with eating disorders, or who are currently receiving chemotherapy. We collected data on patients' age, sex, race and ethnicity, weight, and comorbid conditions. We also collected data regarding the Zofran prescriptions themselves, including the provider level of the prescribing pr provider, the number of doses of Zofran prescribed per prescription, the dose of Zofran prescribed, and the return rate to the ED within 72 hours, or recidivism. We also collected data regarding the emergency department themselves with the date and time of the patient's arrival to the emergency department, as well as the volume, which was measured in patients arriving per hour. We use this as a surrogate for the level of busyness in the emergency department. Finally, we collected data on the patient's triage level. In the emergency department, triage level is between one to five, with patients triaged as a level one being very acute and the patients triaged as a level five as the least acute patients. We reviewed 6,800 charts um, as part of the study. Of those, 4,780 were included in the study. 68% or 3,249 um, patients had, were prescribed Sofran at discharge from the emergency department. 32% or 1,531 patients were not prescribed Sofran from the emergency department. Of the 6,800 charts, um, 2,020 patients were excluded from the study. Of those, 524 patients were admitted to the hospital. Um, the, rest, the majority of the other patients that were excluded from the study were either um, prescribed Zofran for another condition, such as concussion, or prophylactically uh, for sedation, or ha had been diagnosed with comorbid conditions. When looking at the demographics of patients included in the study, we found that those prescribed Zofran and those who are not prescribed Zofran from at discharge were very similar. The average age of patients included in the study was 6.5 years old, with those being prescribed Zofran slightly younger, but not statistically different from those who are not prescribed Zofran. We found on average that half the patients were female, with 53% of patients to overall being female. When looking at race and ethnicity, we found that the distribution was similar to that of the state of Connecticut, with the majority of patients being Hispanic in our study. Finally, when looking at triage level, we found that um, the majority of patients included in the study were triaged as level three or four. There were no patients triaged as a level one included in the study. When looking at how Zofran was prescribed overall, we found a wide range in Zofran prescriptions. The dosing ranged from 0.02 milligrams per kilogram to 1.47 milligrams per kilogram. We think this is likely secondary to the large range in age included in the study. The dose itself ranged from 0.8 milligrams to 10 milligrams, with an average dose of 3.1 milligrams. Of note, standard dosing guidelines um, 
say that Zofran should be, be prescribed from 0.1 milligrams per kilogram to 0.15 milligrams per kilogram with a maximum dose of 8 milligrams. This dosing does go up to 16 milligrams in those used for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. We looked at also the number of doses prescribed per prescription and found a large variability in the range of doses prescribed between 1 to 50 doses per prescription with an average number of 9.1 doses per prescription. When looking at how Zofran was prescribed per, by provider level, we found that advanced practitioners prescribed the least number of doses per prescription on average. Um, this was true even when accounting for age, gender, and triage level, except for triage level two, but this was likely because of the low volume of patients in the emergency in the emergency department that were included in the study with the level triage level of two. We also looked at how Zofran was prescribed based of the based on the volume of patients in the emergency department. Um, when looking at the number of doses prescribed by prescription based on how the volume of patients in the ED per hour, we did not we found very little correlation between the two. Of note. There was a large number of patients who were prescribed 10 doses and a large number of patients that were prescribed 20 doses, um, as you can see in this chart. Finally, we looked at how often patients returned to the emergency department within 72 hours. Um, we found that those who had been prescribed Zofran were returned to the emergency department less frequently than those who were not prescribed Zofran. Of note, the rate of return to the emergency department was independent of how much Zofran was prescribed. So overall, Zofran is prescribed very frequently from the pediatric emergency department, with 68% of patients being prescribed Zofran in the study. Prescription practices were variable and provider-dependent, with advanced practitioners prescribing the least amount of Zofran. We could consider guidelines on prescribing Zofran to make it standardized across all provider levels. Zofran was associated with a reduced 72-hour return rate to the emergency department. The amount of Zofran prescribed was independent of ED recidivism, so we could consider decreasing the amount of Zofran prescribed. The limitations of this study was that this was a retrospective, single-center study that only included data from 2018. Also, the definitions of nausea, vomiting, and acute gastroenteritis, as well as triage level, are all subjective data points included in the study. Finally, we were unable to know if prescription pra prescriptions were filled or taken of the Zofran. In conclusion, this single-center retrospective study found that Zofran was prescribed frequently from the Pediatric Emergency Department and was associated with decreased 72-hour recidivism, regardless of the amount of Zofran prescribed. Prescriptions were noted to be provider-type specific, with advanced practitioners prescribing the least amount of Zofran. Prescription practices were not affected by the volume in the emergency department. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Smith and Dr. Kelly, who are my advisors on this research, as well as Mawa for helping me with the statistical analysis. Thank you.
Okay, so we have some questions. Actually, two look, look like more like comments from Arthur Bloomer. One is, hopefully, you instruct parent patients to call PCP before returning to the ED. Uh, I would hope that we instruct the patients to return, or to call their pediatrician, but I can't say that's true for all providers. And his other comment question is, if four to six doses do not work, further evaluation is required. Um, so that's what we would assume as well. And so I think we were surprised by how frequently we were prescribing Zofran and the amount of Zofran prescribed with each prescription. There's one more. Yeah, there we go. Um, oh, there it is. Oh, this is from Dr. Lau. Zofran is a 5-H, you can tell it's from Dr. Lau. Zofran is a 5-HT antagonist, originally approved to prevent chemotherapy and radiation-induced nausea and vomiting. But now, it is so widely used in non-cancer patients. Has, has there been detailed study comparing the efficacy of Zofran among cancer and non-cancer patients? I'm not actually sure if that has been studied. Um, I know that they have studied Zofran in the population of, for acute gastroenteritis, and it has been shown to improve um, when it came to oral rehydration and decreasing hospital admissions. Uh, but I'm not sure if they've compared the two groups of chemotherapy uh, or cancer patients and non-cancer patients. Uh, you audited the 6,800 charts. Uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and audited 6,800 charts <laughs> for the genders. Um, oh, sorry. We received the question of who audited the 6,800 charts, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it looks like it. A comment as much as a question, but from Alex Hogan, the NNT for gastroenteritis and Zofran is five. Oh, the number needed to treat, yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just read them. I don't, I don't. <laughs> Thank you. You can tell I've been sequestered. I don't have my routine now. Okay, first of all, I want to present you with your certificate and for exciting study, beautiful work. Thank you. And the other envelope. <laughs> Thank you. And from a safe social distance. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. iPad in the process. Okay. Oops. Okay, for our next speaker, we have Dr. Jamie Harris, and he's going to talk to us about nebulizer autoinoculation, the relationship between bacteria dispersion from contaminated nebulizers and biofilm phenotypic properties. I, when I can even pronounce. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pulmonary fellows, and I'm happy to be sharing my research with all of you entitled Nebulizer Autoinoculation, the relationship between bacteria dispersion from contaminated nebulizers and biofilm phenotypic properties. And as I go through my talk, I'll explain what I mean by autoinoculation, because that's not a very well common thing we say. <laughs> I have no disclosures for you all. 
So we use nebulizers to deliver aerosolized medications to our patients. Um, despite rigorous CF uh, foundation protocols for cleaning and disinfection of nebulizers uh, in cystic fibrosis, they're often found to be contaminated with different types of bacteria. Many studies have documented this and um, at home, uh, the nebulizers used by patients have been found to be cultured positive for anywhere from oral flora to the um, pathogenic bacteria specific to cystic fibrosis. And in the hospital setting, um, nebulizers have been associated, contaminated nebulizers have been associated with severe outbreaks uh, and acquisition of these uh, pathogenic bacteria such as Pseudomonas and Stenotrophomonas and Burkholderia. Um, and this also extends not to just our cystic fibrosis patients, but also to uh, patients with asthma and COPD. Their nebulizers have also been found to be contaminated. So when I had mentioned auto-inoculation, what I was referring to is, does the nebulizer act as a source of uh, bacteria acquisition? So when we inhale our treatments during um, uh, nebulizer treatment, are we inhaling the bacteria that are present on the surface of the nebulizer? So is the nebulizer acting as a source of primary infection and a source of reinfection? And then the other thing I'm looking at is what characteristics of the bacteria make it so that they either choose to stay on the nebulizer surface or disperse into the lungs. So how I uh, have been proving this or showing my research is by using the next generation cascade impactor, which is basically a mock steel lung. And as you can see in this picture, it's that steel uh, apparatus inside that big refrigerator is the NGI. And so what I would do is I would add um, bacteria to the nebulizer surface. The bacteria I used were uh, isolated from de-identified uh, patients uh, with cystic fibrosis. And the bacteria I used were uh, the pathogenic bacteria specific to cystic fibrosis, such as Staph aureus, Pseudomonas, Burkholderia, Stenotrophomonas, and Acromobacter. So once I had pipetted them onto the surface of the nebulizer, I let the, the nebulizers air dry, and then uh, added albuterol, a medication we use commonly to deliver um, uh, for a bronchodilator, and I nebulized it through the NGI. And as you move through the NGI, the nozzles get progressively smaller. So at the proximal end, the, the size of the holes or nozzles are large that represent your central uh, larger airways. And as you move more distally through it, they, it becomes progress, progressively smaller, representing your smaller airways. And at the end, your alveolar ducts and sacs. Then after nebulization, I would uh, culture the, all the different nozzle areas of the NGI and then uh, incubate that overnight, thoroughly disinfect the system, and then the next day count the colonies that had grown. This is a picture de uh, depicting what the inside of the NGI looks like. And as you can see, as you move proximally, uh, proximal from distal, 
the size of the nozzles progressively gets smaller and smaller. Um, so proximal is your bigger airways, more distal is your smaller airways. And from this, we um, use, we nebulize albuterol or you can use other medications. Um, and you can collect the medication in each stage or nozzle size of the NGI to calculate and then collect the medication from that and then use the, the amount of drug you collected from that to calculate a number called the mass median aerodynamic diameter, which is a measure of particle size. And that's important because you can compare it to the size and distribution of the bacteria as it moves through the system. And essentially a small uh, MMAD or mass median aerodynamic diameter means a smaller particle size that is able to move more distally through your mock lung or NGI and the bigger particle size means that they're more likely to be stay proximal and land in your upper airway or large central airways. So from the bacteria that I used and uh, introduced onto the nebulizer surface, all of the uh, bacteria I had used actually dispersed except for Acromobacter. The predominant species that dispersed was Staph aureus. The least common was Pseudomonas. And 50% of Burkholderia and Stenotrophomonas had dispersed from what I've tested thus far. This is uh, a, uh, a figure depicting where the bacteria that dispersed distributed through the NGI. And what I want to you to note from this is that the number one to five micrometers is important because that is a number that represents the respirable range, which is the uh, size of the particle that penetrates into the lung to affect the areas that are involved in gas exchange. So all of the bacteria were able to disperse throughout the entire NGI and um, they were able to penetrate into that one to five micrometer size. Next, we used discarded used patient nebulizers that we didn't know when they were last disinfected or cleaned. And uh, it was exciting to see that the very first nebulizer that I had collected from a patient had been highly contaminated. So uh, it had lots of bacteria, two morphologically different types that uh, went into that respirable range or that very small particle size to travel very distal into the NGI or your fake lung or mock lung. No, I don't want to say fake, mock lung. Um, <laughs> and so the, uh, I later found that the bacteria were identified as Enterobacter, uh, which is an oral flora, and then a pathogenic bacteria to cystic fibrosis, the Stenotrophomonas multophilia, and it went throughout the entire NGI. So 40%, so 10 of the patient nebulizers I had uh, collected uh, aerosolized bacteria into that respirable range. Two of them had just grown oroflora, bacillus cereus, and enterobacter. And then two uh, other ones had grown a oroflora or a skin flora, so enterobacter and staph epi. And then they also had grown a pathogenic bacteria, Stenotrophomonas multophilia and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So what I've uh, shown thus far is that I've developed a uh, model to demonstrate that nebulizers can be a source of uh, infection. So basically if 
your nebulizer is contaminated, then you have the potential to disperse bacteria or acquire bacteria when you're getting a breathing treatment. And so um, I've shown that bacteria can be aerosolized from the nebulizer surface into the small areas. And the predominant species thus far that um, dispersed were Staph aureus and Oroflora. So my next steps are to determine what characteristics essentially make it so that they will either disperse or stay on a uh, nebulizer. And a lot of that has to do with what the intrinsic uh, biofilm of that bacteria is. So we're going to be working with a rheology expert to look at the specific flow and pattern of a biofilm, as well as look at the strength and associate that with dispersion. We're going to assess if drying time kills bacteria. So if you leave it out to dry for longer periods of time, does is it less like or if you leave it to dry for longer periods of time, um, is it less likely that the bacteria will disperse? And then uh, we're looking at Pseudomonas mutants with known exopolysaccharide defects and biofilm formation to see what what makes a biofilm either weak or small, uh, weak or strong. Um, in those specific mutants. And uh, I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Murray and Dr. Collins for um, being my mentors and helping me through all this. Uh, of course, the Connecticut Children's Pulmonary Team, but also the Yale CF Lab team, especially Pam, who helps me grow and count and set up my experiments, and also uh, Dr. Schramm and Jen Dorado for their overseeing my research and helping me out throughout this process. Um, other questions? I have a question, but I don't see it. Is it, it is on. Okay. Uh, okay. So um, who did the characterizations of the uh, bacteria recovered from used nebulizers. Can you say that again? How did they? How did you speciate the yeah, bacteria so, that recovered? Uh, the bacteria was isolated from patient sputum um, that was collected at the Yale CF Center and then isolated in the Yale Microbiology Lab there. It's done in a real, a real microbiology. Correct. Lab, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And my other other questions. Okay. Great presentation. This is from John Schreiber, by the way. We all know John. What strategy should we adopt to re I guess I'll take my mask off. That would help. What strategy should we adopt to reduce this bacterial spread from the nebulizer? Now that we know this is hard to do, I don't follow. Now that we know this is hard to do, nothing. I'm, I can. Sure. I mean, I can. I'll answer what was asked so far. So um, basically, prevention is key. I think that's a you know a very key aspect to the life we're living right now too. So the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has very specific guidelines regarding cleaning and disinfection. Sorry, I was answering his question. <laughs> uh, cleaning and disinfection. So that uses um, that utilizes either a chemical or a thermal way of disinfection. The uh, chemical ways are uh, using ethanol or hydrogen peroxide to submerge your nebulizer in. The thermal ways of disinfection are um, 
using <laughs> using boiling, uh, microwave, uh, a dishwasher, or a baby bottle steam sterilizer. And um, you should definitely be cleaning your nebulizer before you give a uh, you do the disinfection process, and then your um, nebulizer has to be air dry so you can't be using a wet nebulizer because that's also a source of uh, where bacteria can lie. Um, John clarified the last part of his question. <laughs> what he meant to say it, it is hard to do nothing. Okay. So we have another question from Dr. Adam Matson. Mm -hmm. Does the NGI factor in cilia or mucus uh, that would trap microbes in the airways? Uh, that's that's a great question, and so no, I mean there are some limitations to the NGI. Um, next steps are also to potentially utilize CF-specific sputum. So um, I'm just inoculating or adding the bacteria onto the surface of the nebulizer, but. Um, the characteristics are different from when you're actually putting your mouth on a nebulizer. So if we uh, suspend the bacteria in CF sputum and then put them on the surface of the nebulizer, that would be more likely to represent an actual treatment um, when you're putting your mouth actually on the nebulizer surface. Mm -hmm. Jim, great, great presentation. I do have a question of, is there a difference between your, you know, your, your nebulizer equipment versus your meter dose inhaler? Uh, great question. So there, the question was, is there a difference between nebulizer uh, treatments and um, the meter dose inhaler? And so, um, I mean, I want to say no, but the answer to that is that when you're using a meter dose inhaler, um, you're timing that with how you're breathing. So the flow of the NGI is actually more like a vacuum that's continuous as you're sucking the breathing treatment through that. So um, you would have to get a special sort of like actuator breathing apparatus type vacuum that sucks out at the time of when you're doing the inhaled treatment to simulate more of like how you would uh, be breathing um, when you're getting the treatment. So, so it's be, a little so bit that different. So it may be safer, frankly, from that. It might be a little safer. I think, you know, I think um, that's why we're also you know, in COVID, we're also utilizing more like MDIs uh, compared to your uh, nebulizer treatments. So. Thank you. Great work. Okay. So, once again, I would love to, <laughs> to present you with your Thank certificate you. for an excellent research project Thank and you. one that I hope you'll pursue uh, in your fellowship. Um, and, and here is, of course, is your. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, moving on. This is, this is on the job training, if ever. Okay, so now for our last speaker. Our speaker is Rushika J Jones. And there we go. <laughs> The title of her presentation is The Use of High Fidelity Simulation with Pediatric Advanced Life Support Training to Improve Resident Choreography of Codes. Rashika? Good morning. My name is Rashika Jones, and I'm a second year pediatric emergency medicine fellow here at Connecticut Children's. 
Thank you for the opportunity to share my research with all of you today, the title of which is the use of high fidelity simulation with pediatric advanced life support training to improve resident choreography of codes. I'd like to start by thanking Dr. Carla Pruden for all her help and support and mentorship in this project. I have no disclosures. The simulation-based medical education has been credited with standardizing medical education and improving clinical performance. Simulation studies have shown that residents can improve their procedural competency in skills such as endotracheal intubation, IV placement, chest tube insertion, among other procedures. And studies have also shown that simulation can improve trainee confidence and closed loop communication skills. While there's a large body of evidence looking at the benefits of simulation in medical education, there are fewer studies looking to investigate the transfer into clinical practice of medical decision-making skills that are acquired during simulation training. Specifically, there is specific information on procedural competencies, trainees, uh, confidence, but there is less information looking at specifically simulation and training code choreography. And while closed loop communication has become a standard in simulation training and code management, there's little literature out there looking at specific phrasing that may be more beneficial in improving efficiency in teamwork and code management. Simulation offers an ideal environment to evaluate additional skills. So established pediatric advanced life support or PALS courses provide a unique research opportunity. The purpose of our study is to determine if additional instruction in specific code choreography and action-linked phrases during an initial PALS course is associated with improved skill acquisition compared to PALS alone in a cohort of first-year residents. This is a prospective randomized pilot study that we completed between June and October of 2019. We recruited a convenient sample of incoming PD, PGY-1 pediatric and emergency medicine residents who were completing their initial PAL certification course during their residency orientation in the summer of 2019. All residents were consented for participation in the study. As is typical of a PALS course, residents complete two days of training within assigned groups. And for the purpose of our study, we randomized these into control and intervention groups. But all residents, despite their assigned group, completed the PALS course as per the typical structure and schedule of the curriculum. All practice and testing cases during the two days were conducted using high fidelity simulation. The intervention groups uh, participated in a 10-minute PowerPoint presentation during their breakout hands-on practice sessions on day one. And it was during this, uh, practice present or this presentation that we introduced our intervention, which we call a dance repertoire. We relate code management to a song or a dance, where you have a recurring chorus after every unique verse. The dance repertoire focuses on three different areas. The first is code choreography. This is the organization and prioritization of critical steps and the timing of those steps in code management. The second is coordination of select tasks. For example, coordinating the change of a compressor at a two minute pulse and rhythm check. And the last was communication in which we taught action linked phrases, which serve as kind of memory triggers to link the identification of a clinical problem to the associated task or intervention. Action linked phrases also help to promote closed loop communication. This is a diagram that depicts our dance repertoire. On the left, you can see the cardiac arrest protocol divided into five major categories. We adopted this from prior literature and augmented it with the addition of the word elaborate to prompt trainees to consider their HSNTs during a cardiac arrest. 
We also color coded it using the Band-Aid Man icon at Connecticut Children's, and we use these colors to correspond with the different roles of the team members during a cardiac arrest. On the right of this diagram, you can see the juxtaposition of the cardiac arrest protocol with the structure of a song. Here, the different verses of our dance repertoire include the various clinical interventions and critical steps of code management. And every two minutes, there is a recurring chorus, which is the pulse and rhythm check and the changing compressor. The timing of the different interventions in our verses come from the American Heart Association's Get With the Guidelines. These are evidence-based guidelines looking at the timing, the optimal timing of critical interventions. For example, starting compressions within one minute of recognizing pulselessness, administering a shock within two minutes of recognizing a shockable rhythm, and the third is administrating medica medications such as epinephrine within three to five minutes of recognizing pulselessness. These timings and interventions were reinforced during debriefing sessions after each simulated scenario for our intervention groups. All residents completed a pre and post self-assessment questionnaire to evaluate their level of confidence during the initial PALS course. They also completed a pre and post medical knowledge assessment and also the, in the simulated scenarios on day two of the PALS training course were videotaped and scored at a later time by faculty reviewers from the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Department using a skills checklist that we developed to assess the various aspects of our intervention. Residents also participated in retention assessment section, uh, sessions six weeks and three months after the initial PALS course. The same assessment tools were used for all three of these time points, and residents were kept in their same study groups, with one exception, which I'll discuss soon. Our primary assessed outcome was time in seconds to specific interventions listed here, and our secondary measured outcomes included confidence, medical knowledge of resuscitation, and communication. So we recorded, uh, recruited 20 pediatric residents and 14 emergency medicine residents. Unfortunately, due to scheduling conflicts, we were unable to capture all of the pediatric residents at our six-week and three-month follow-up sessions. So in our three-month follow-up session with the pediatric residents, instead of having four study groups, we had to divide them into two study groups, control and intervention, but we maintained all residents in their study arms. Because of the small sample sizes of our study, especially at the six-week and three-month follow-up visits, we were unable to perform robust comparative statistical analyses, but we did look at descriptive data with all of the results that we collected. This diagram looks at the mean time to start of compressions between the control and intervention groups at the different time points of our study. You can see that initially during our PALS course, the intervention group, which is in yellow, performed compressions faster than the control groups. While this was not sustained at six weeks and three months, you can see that overall, all residents completed the start of compressions faster at the three-month time frame. This table looks at the mean time to defibrillation between two groups, and you can see that at each of the time points, the intervention group performed defibrillation faster than the control groups. Also, you can see that while in the control group, there's a continuous increase in the time to defibrillation, at three months, there's actually a big gap between the control and intervention groups, with the intervention group coming back to its pre-PALS um, course timing to defibrillation. This chart looks at medication administration, so the first dose of a cardioactive medication such as epinephrine. Here you can see that at the initial and three-month timeframes, the intervention group administered medication faster than the control group, and both groups actually came back close to their initial um, PALS course timing at three months. When looking at the pediatric and emergency medicine residents separately during the initial PALS course, we can see here a diagram comparing the pediatric intervention and pediatric control groups. 
The intervention group performed the administration of medication within about two minutes, whereas the control group took about three minutes. The difference here of one minute was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.025. The same difference was not seen in emergency medicine residents or with the other parameters tested. As expected for medical knowledge, there was no significant difference between control and intervention groups. However, you can see that there was an increase in medical knowledge for all residents after the PALS course. This was not sustained at six weeks and three months, which is consistent with current published literature on resuscitation training programs. This diagram looks at the confidence assessments from the self-assessment questionnaire, which uses statements um, on a Likert scale of one to five to evaluate resident confidence. Here, we compare the mean scores at the initial PALS course between control and intervention groups, and there was no statistically significant difference. Overall, though, if you look at the timing, as expected, while the initial uh, level of confidence goes up after the PALS course, it drops off a bit at six weeks, which has also been shown in prior studies. Overall, however, all residents showed an improvement in their confidence at three months when compared to their pre-PALS confidence assessment. And lastly, when comparing the number of action-linked phrases used at the initial PALS course between control and intervention groups, we found no statistically significant difference. This was consistent at six weeks and three months as well. There were no significant differences between pediatric or emergency medicine residents. So in terms of what we've learned from our study, medical knowledge increased after the PALS course, but this was not sustained at six weeks or three months. And this is consistent with current literature looking at retention of knowledge and skills gained after a resuscitation training programs. Confidence assessment was similar between both groups, but confidence did overall increase at three months compared to the pre-PALS assessment. In terms of our video review data, there was a shorter time to particular interventions by the intervention group, particularly for defibrillation at all three time points and medication administration for the initial and three-month time periods. There was also an overall decrease in the time to starting compressions for both groups over time. The major limitation for our study was sample size. This was a pilot study to inform future studies, but we were unable to compare um, by using a strong power and statistical analyses between our groups. And scheduling conflicts with resident schedules was kind of one of the things that um, made the sample size issue even greater. Technical difficulties, which we also did found kind of throughout our study, caused inconsistencies with audio and visual data, making it harder for our video reviewers to obtain all the necessary data. So in conclusion, based on our data, intervention groups performed some critical interventions faster than control groups. And though the small sample sizes make it difficult to ascertain statistical significance, these differences may be clinically significant in cardiopulmonary arrest scenarios. And overall knowledge gained, though increased after the initial PALS course, was not sustained, which is consistent with prior literature. I'd like to also acknowledge these um, individuals and groups here for all their support in my study. Thanks. Uh, so we do have a question okay. from Dr. Bill Zemsky. Yeah. So how would you improve knowledge retention, which is obviously a, a critical question, I think. Yeah, so that's a good question. So our intervention doesn't actually look at medical knowledge. Like we don't have any part of our intervention that's actually teaching resuscitation medical knowledge. Um, and we just kind of used it to see if there was any change after they participated in more clinical scenarios. I think that what residents have told us just from doing the study and talking with them and getting some of their feedback is that the didactics on day one of the PALS class really do help. And so maybe incorporating some sort of small, brief kind of um, didactic component to our 
simulations in addition to the debrief may actually contribute to medical knowledge of resuscitation overall. So I, I have a sort of a follow-up question, actually, since you mentioned uh, prior studies have shown the same thing. So why is there? such poor retention? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think repetition is key. You know, so in some of our data, what we found interesting was that at six weeks, the time to certain interventions increased, but then at three months, it may have come back down to the pre-PALS assessment. And that was interesting because while residents here at UConn do get a lot of simulation training, we're not really sure if they got anything between our initial and three-month sessions. But I imagine that having that six-week session with us may have improved their knowledge and their skill retention, and thus we saw the differences at three months. So I think repetition is probably key, and we are you know, doing a lot more sims here for residents and fellows, and I think over time that would increase the overall acquisition of skills. Is, is there any assessment of residents' performance during a code? or? So, or so how they perform during COVID. Yeah, case, that's a good question. Not that I'm aware of for the residency. Um, I know for fellows, we do a lot of kind of departmental simulations with our medical director and with the fellows alone and with the department. We don't get particularly evaluated, but we do often debrief with our faculty after a true code in our ER. Mm -hmm. But there's no, I, that I know of, any formulative kind of um, evaluation process. Okay. Thank you. That was, uh, that was a, just a great, uh, great morning. Uh, Dr. Shriver was texting me and, and just reminding us that in the midst of the pandemic, our mission is still strong and academics and research is certainly part of what we do here at Connecticut Children. So thank you to the four of you for presenting. That was uh, amazing. Uh, Dr. Smith, thank you for your leadership in this. And Justin, thank you for uh, helping us this morning. Um, you managed to handle the mask and the microphone pretty well. I'm very proud of you. Uh, to all of you, we'll see you next week. Dr. Schramm is uh, presenting. And then the week after that, we have Dr. Albert Koh, uh, who is uh, a colleague in infectious disease epidemiologist who will be talking about the uh, getting back to work. And he's in the governor's task force. So we have two grand rounds left. Uh, this Friday, we have the, uh, once again, uh, uh, we have our own Dr. Fauci, his name is Dr. Shriver, uh, in the Ask the Experts session. So join us uh, at uh, 8 o'clock sharp. Uh, and again, we'll see everyone. One last thing, I want to congratulate all the residents and fellows for their upcoming graduation. This e evening, uh, we have a, I think it's what we call a drive-through graduation of some form. It's going to be interesting. So tune in. I think you can actually log in on Zoom. So again, thank you. Have a great day. Have, be safe. And we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.